Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Livebook 0.5 was released. The big thing that I thought was really cool is the livebook.dev website has a what's new menu now. And when you click it, there's a little slide out bar that links to blog posts. And that blog post, I have a link to it in the show notes, you can check it out. But it goes over some of these things we're going to mention that's part of this 0.5 release. So one of the things is it shows how they use Livebook's built-in widgets to build a chat app and a multiplayer Pong game. And now with Kino.js, you can build your own collaborative widgets. And they're really kind of stressing the idea that they want Livebook to be easy to deploy and to even be collaborative. That'll be interesting to see, especially as we go further with that. When you first launch Livebook and you haven't opened a notebook yet, there's like an explore section there. You should check that out because in there, there's a whole new section about Kino, which includes several notebooks that detail how to use Kino, which is input controls and everything in this new way. And they also share that since a lot of people seem to be using Livebook as a way to document projects and code, the addition of Mermaid helps because you can create diagrams from ASCII characters and arrows just by adding a little markdown section and doing tick, 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 mermaid, and then your mermaid syntax stuff turns into a nice little graphic. That's very cool. We also saw that in an upcoming future release, Jose said that they will release a runtime sidebar to display the beam memory usage. So you can check out the tweet in the show notes it kind of looks like the the dashboard view where you can see like your memory usage. It's got like a, a graph of how many atoms and how much code and other things are running. I just feel like they're adding tons of fun little things to Lifebook. It was already good, but it's just getting awesome. Have you guys noticed that like in, in live dashboard, if you're doing the system metrics that like if you're deployed in a, into a container, like it, it'll actually give you the entire systems metrics and not your like what your containers allowed to get. <laughs> no, I hadn't noticed that. Seems fine. It <laughs> <laughs> seems fine. <laughs> yeah. I get like four gig of memory or something like that in in a in a in a pod, but like live dashboard. And I'm presuming this new feature is gonna show me that I have like thirty-two gig available <laughs> to me or something. <laughs> I was like, oh man, it's not very helpful. Yeah, but what I like about this little memory usage thing is I think it'll be nice because when I've deployed Livebook to small instances, like remote hosted instances, and I open up multiple notebooks and each with their own runtime going, and I wasn't closing down the runtimes that I wasn't using anymore, I hit the out of memory error and it just kind of restarted the instance and brought it back. So I didn't lose anything, but it was just like, I could have easily prevented that hassle. I think being able to see there on your little sidebar, oh yeah, I've got a, my memory is climbing and I'm on a small instance. I should shut down some of these other runtimes. Yeah, that's a good point. For people that are looking for some tips or examples on upgrading from the older L-E-E-X templates to H-E-E-X, Michael Crum has shared a PR that he used to update this for his live view upload example. So we'll have a link to the PR. I went through this myself in a, in a personal project and confirmed that that's basically it. <laughs> it's, it's things like, you know, going to the HEEX syntax, which uses uh, handlebars for interpolating into like HTML attribute values, things like that. A little different like component syntax. So you have to pass in the socket 
Go through the the PR if you're interested in in upgrading from from L E E X, which is close to E E X as well, and you want to jump up to H E E X and see what kind of work would be involved in that. And just a reminder that MPEX Mountain is happening. It is a one day single track Elixir conference. This is May sixth. It's in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the call for proposals is now open through March 6th. So if it's something you were thinking about doing, and they've expressed a lot of interest in being able to help people who are first-time contributors and, and presenters as well. So it's a great opportunity if you're looking to do that. I like the single track conferences. Some time ago, I went to the Ruby conferences as the Ruby Mountain conferences, and they were always single track. And what I liked about that is everyone is kind of seeing the same thing. And you just have the, the, the big breaks between the different sessions and people could just talk and hang out. It just felt a little smaller, not too overwhelming. So I like that feel. Hopefully I can make it this year. You don't feel like you get lost in the crowd or something? Yeah. All right, last up, Open Pro gets a new cool feature. If you don't know what Open is, Open is a job processing library backed by Postgres. Normally when you queue up a job, You'll queue up the worker and some arguments for it, and then the job processor will just process it. You don't really get the the final value out of that. It's just a job meant for uh, side effects, for example. You don't actually get to see what the the final value would be. So you might just always return just like okay or something, and, that, and that's kind of it. Well, in this new feature, there is a a new way to get and inspect the value returned from your open jobs. This is pro only. If you really need that, you might consider upgrading to Pro, but I found that to be a differentiating value that Open Pro can bring. If seeing the the output of your jobs, like for example, like just seeing that it got to the last line of your job work instead of like just mysteriously disappearing and you don't know where the side effects went, this might be a pretty cool feature for you to, to validate that things actually happened correctly. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Chris McCord. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me back. Yes, Chris, you were with us not too long ago, but we're super happy that you could join us again because there's something that you've been working on at Fly we've been seeing some teasings about it in some of the blog posts and Twitter things and little recipes that have been coming out where some audio stuff is getting teased. Now, I got the sense that you were wanting to perhaps challenge some of these long-held assumptions about what Phoenix is good or is not good for. And I'm really excited to have you share what you've been playing with and where it's taken you. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you Maybe you can tell us a little about yourself, like where you live and what kind of work you're doing. Sure. Yeah. So I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, creator of Phoenix, which is a Elixir web framework. Most folks probably know if you're listening to this. I also work at fly.io. There I'm working the majority of my time on Phoenix. I also work on content for the company around blog posts and then certain things such as this little app I've been working on as well that help both promote Phoenix and also hopefully uh, promote Fly as well. One of the things I like about you having joined Fly is Kurt, he's our boss. We both work at Fly, right? He has pushed you more to do public writing, which I certainly appreciate just as a member of the community and seeing and reading some of that. Because I know previously with Dockyard, you would still do writing, 
but I think a lot of your time was also focused with client work. So is there anything you can share on what you're doing now in terms of how you're splitting your time? You know, it's similar to what I was doing before where, you know, the vast majority of my time is just working on open source, but then I get the, the company time is exclusively on essentially content production. It's not strictly content, like really any time that would hopefully bring some amount of exposure and awareness and developer advocacy back to fly. So that's where this application that I've been working on, I'm going to write blog posts about it, but it's been, I'd say probably a couple months now uh, in the making on and off from open source work where uh, I've just gotten to go heads down and, and build something that's going to be both useful to the community. It's going to promote uh, Phoenix uh, and also it happens to be deployed on fly. We're going to be able to use some of the features of the platform to kind of make it extra special. But I think that, yeah, I've been able to focus my non-open source time on areas that I think both benefit Phoenix and are more tailored towards just like outreach, which is really nice. Maybe now is a good time for you to introduce what this project is. What are you calling it? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. So the goal for this was, you know, Mark, you mentioned Kurt was as our, our boss, CEO of Fly, and he had this idea of like making kind of like a maybe flagship is the wrong word, but a really first class live view application that can show off really all the benefits of the of the platform. Because we have like, you know, there's a live view examples app under my personal GitHub repo, which needed some TLC for a long time, but that just had like little one-off toy examples, you know, neat examples like infinite scrolling. Here's, you know, some updating widgets, but it wasn't like an, an app, right? You could go there and see like one page that did some dynamic things where it was like, let's just build something really cool. It sounded like an awesome idea to me, uh, but we also wanted to like stretch like or kind of put down this idea that, you know, live view is really only good for these little widgets or like back office type things, which it is fantastic at. But we wanted to kind of push back and say, like, you could build something that feels like a single page app that is actually really compelling and we can deploy it and then just link people to it. Kurt just picked a audio player, like a, you know, let's say Apple Music, just type uh, application and something that, you know, you would have persistent. UI features where you can navigate around the app, but the player stays on the page, things that you would consider would require a single page app. Uh, so kind of just started with that idea and just started writing writing code. And it happened to coincide perfectly with the LiveView 017 release, which has like a bunch of new features. So for me personally, it's been a good test bed for actually really using these new features in earnest. Because that's something, you know, leaving the consulting world that is, uh, I need to have some kind of touch point with the things I'm building. I can't just like develop features in a vacuum. So it's kind of served this, say, like multiple purpose thing where it's like going to be a really, really great example for the community. Uh, we're just going to release the code, say, here's how you can implement these things that you're using. Uh, it's going to be something that I can just link people to on, let's, on, let's say, Hacker News when they're like, oh, you know, it's, you know, live, the latency is, you know, going to be bad or like all these ideas are things that I can now just like literally link them to a website and be like, you know, mic drop, like <laughs> just use this and report back. This started from the question, what do we call it? So it's a, I'd say social music player that people can upload MP3s to and other folks can come on and listen to their playlist in real time. Kind of like a DJ uh, with the DJ FM. There's other ideas around this, but I can put a playlist together upload mp3s and then other folks can listen to that i can see who's listening to my music as the owner of the playlist i can advance the tracks and then everyone's going to have their tracks advanced at the same time and they're going to sync up on the same timeline so it kind of looks like social music aspect and then you know you can navigate around the app and the music player stays fixed on the page using all the new features that we've released in live view and it's also something that's going to feel like a single page app but 
it's very little JavaScript behind the scenes. Yeah, I like what you said about not developing it in a vacuum. I think around a year ago, there was a bunch of changes made to Live View testing because Dashbit and Jose were using Live View, building a project internally, which they eventually open source over and go learn from what they were doing. But while they were developing it, he was like, oh, there's all these changes we could make to testing to make it more streamlined. And I remember seeing those changes coming out and I was like, this is awesome. These are really great changes. So a lot of benefit from from using these things and getting the feel for it. I also remember just some time ago, the idea talking about what what is live view good for? You know, say what would normally be a static page with some small interactions and some faster feedback, you know, things that you'd normally reach for JavaScript to do, like with the client-side framework. And just saying, you know, those are easy wins for live view. And that's true, that they have been great opportunities. People have continued to push kind of the boundaries and say, well, what, what can we make it do? But there's always this idea of, oh, if you're building something like Spotify or like Google Maps, it's not a good fit. It's just, you need a single page app for that. And this is taking that one approach of the Spotify-like example of saying, you have some long running process like audio playing while you're navigating around the page, but it's all server-side rendered. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. Just like that, oh, this is server-side rendered, right? I think it's super exciting. This represents a challenge to the assumptions that we, a lot of us have held for some time. But we got to ask you some more questions about it because I'm sure there's lots more that people will be wanting to know. So one is you're saying, oh, well, this lets people upload MP3s and play them to other people. Immediately, I got like these copyright alarms flying off in my head. What, what concerns do you have around that? Yeah, uh, lots of concerns. Um, <laughs> so- <laughs> The first pass of this, I was like, oh, people could just, you know, upload or just have like a link of the YouTube videos or something. And we would just like play some audio behind the scenes. But but we, we wanted to show off like, you know, the li- live view uploads are really, really powerful. So it's like, you know, we got to get file uploads in there. Because that's something like people just point on like, oh, we'll just have some other service handle this. So it's like I wanted to get uploads in there and show those off. So, yeah, it, it's a concern. So. I did add like when you upload the MP3s, there is like a attribution. So I should say like the name of this app is like a public domain <laughs> MP3 social application. <laughs> but it's hilarious because the, the demo users, uh, which the posts on this uh, have been like, like the only thing that people are uploading, you know, internally is like just copyrighted music. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what we're doing actually, before we make this public, we are adding a songs are going to expire on a pretty aggressive auto expire and delete themselves pretty aggressively just because of this, this issue. Cause like, you know, I'm deploying this, uh, we're using just like disk persistence. So these are saved on, on the server. It is, you know, user generated content that we can't super trust. So it's something that we're going to, uh, we're going to prune files on the back end aggressively so people can try it out and use it, but we're not going to keep those things around very long. So it is a concern, but the really neat thing is it, it shows off live view uploads, you get file progress. But the other thing we're doing, which is really neat, is we actually are parsing the MP3 binary after the file's uploaded in real time. So it's like we're doing all this concurrent work where you upload the MP3 and we're not just going to take your word for it or the metadata of the type of the file as like, oh, yeah, this looks like an MP3, so I'm going to send it to everyone's browser. Like we're actually going through the binary content. Before you click save, we actually read all of the frames of the MP3 with Elixir code, we're not shelling out that with MPEG. We're actually walking the frames and calculating the file size or the MP3 duration. So I've learned a lot of things about MP3s 
And it's actually really hard to find out how long an MP3 is. Like it can be in the ID3 metadata in the MP3. Uh, that's not trusted, but you, you could at least get it from there. But most of the MP3s I've seen don't even have it there. So you actually have to walk the frames of the file and then based on like the bit rate, like there's all these calculations. Uh, so anyway, fortunately, someone had written an MP3 parser and elixir that we're, we're using. But yeah, so we, we actually walk the binary file content as it's uploaded in, in real time. So like when you're dropping files in the upload pane, you'll see them like uploading as soon as they get dropped. And then like it says, like it's calculating the duration. As soon as the file is 100%, it, it walks the binary and, and you see how long the file is. Uh, and we use that to validate not only like, is this an MP3? It's like, yes, we know it is because we walked literally all the, all the bytes and we calculated a real duration. So we know that people aren't uploading, you know, something that looks MP3-esque and could potentially have a vulnerability in it. So we're doing some, you know, I, I think quite non-trivial things that show off like what Elixir is really good at. You know, if you're using other languages, it would be a difficult problem just to get real-time uploads in the first place. But then like you're like enqueuing a background job to like go take a look at the file now and then like somehow report that back to the browser. It's like, this is all just like done for us in the app and it's quite simple code-wise. That reminds me of an early YouTube bug. I think somebody had found out a way to upload. Well, now it's common, right? Now you can go to some video and it's like, oh, this is the 10-hour version of that video. <laughs> and there was like a time limit of YouTube, you know, the, you you couldn't do that, but they found found this bug. And I, I, I would guess it has something to do about this frames and trusted input. They weren't actually walking it like you are. Yeah, that's my guess. And it gets really complicated. Like, it's like, do I, I thought it would be very easy, like, Oh, just like, you know, because I wanted to add a validation. You can only upload files of a certain size or a certain length in time. And that turned out to be a very hard problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned a couple features in particular, like the you wanted to showcase file uploads and then even the concurrent processing in the background of walking the MP3 files. Are there other live view features that are being shown off in this demo? Yeah, a ton. So one of the things we shipped recently is like this JavaScript command idea where you can declaratively say some client operations that you want to execute on the client and not have to make a round trip to the server. These are for things like toggling something visibility-wise, uh, closing a modal, adding a class to something when the user clicks something, like all these things that you would do in JavaScript that shouldn't you know, make a 400 millisecond round trip to the server. So we're making use of that everywhere in the app. So like when you click upload or click delete on a song, you, you get a dialogue that says tailwind modal, like, okay, or cancel. And like, that's not making a round trip to the server to say, show the modal. And then it's not making a round trip to say, okay, you know, they click cancel. It's just on the client, if they click cancel, it hides it. So we're making use of this idea that we've recommended all along, but required the user to expend some effort on like things that should be purely client side, should stay purely client side. So now that's much easier to do with the latest live view, at least. And we use that all over the place. So that's being shown off. There's a new template syntax that shipped that allow you, allows you to like componentize markup. We're using Tailwind UI in this app. This hope that I had was that we could make use of this new markup syntax to hide all the class soup that people complain about with Tailwind. I had never built something that way. So I got to kind of use this as a test bed where... It turns out the actual application UIs that you're writing. So like once you have this like base componentized template where you're like, okay, this is a table and the, the markup says like dot table, right? It's not like dot table, you know, BG red five, like all these classes that's encapsulated into one place. I componentize a lot of things in the app, like a dot modal. And then in one place is all the tailwind stuff. And it turns out like all of the main live use for the app then become remarkably succinct. Like it's not like there's just tailwind classes everywhere. I mean, they're here and there as you want to customize things, 
kind of proved my initial intuition or hope that it would work out in a, in a way that, you know, Tailwind would, you get all the benefits without kind of all these complaints of you copy paste, you know, arbitrary classes everywhere. So that's another neat thing in the app that has been really fun to use. Mark had mentioned this persistent media player idea. So we added the ability to more easily have persistent pieces of UI in the app. It used to be where you could have something in your root layout that was a separate live view from the main live view, but you couldn't easily say like, well, I want to be able to navigate around. And the main live view has this other nested live view that sticks around between navigations. So we allowed the ability to actually say like some piece of content uh, within the app, even though its parent changes entirely, can actually stay persistent and alive on the server. So that's what we're using for the web player. And the really neat thing about the web player is like, you know, going back to our opening, I think people will may hear this and say like, well, you know, they, they were able to make a media player, but like, you know, people could do that before with like PJX, right? Like you could have a media player on the screen. And then as you navigate around, you you don't destroy that DOM node. So like not that interesting, right? A Band-Aid or horse and buggy kind of solution. But the, the really interesting thing, which I'll challenge folks is what we get with this approach is the media player is a live running process on the server. So like, imagine you want, you were building a social copyright-free audio player in another platform, primarily a single page app. And you wanted to actually say like, well, who's listening to the app currently? Or, you know, when someone hits the next song, it broadcasts and disseminates that out to everybody else. So you're like, well, we'd have to open up some WebSocket connection on the client. We'd have to do all these things to broker that presence information, broker the messages. And for us, it's like, no, you write server-rendered markup for a media player. We have a little bit of JavaScript. It's like, I think, 60 lines for the audio player to actually, you know, stream the audio and handle the audio tag. But outside of that, like the presence information, disseminating those events is like, I I wrote a media player on the server that rendered a pretty tailwind play pause left, right. And then I just added like presence information. And then when someone clicked the right hand button, it was RPC call to the server that did a broadcast. And then everyone's live views just went to the next song. So it was like this idea of like, it's not like a band-aid approach. It's like, there are superior benefits here where like you're not bringing in all, all this infrastructure to say like well now you know hit this GraphQL endpoint for the tracks but also open a website connection to the server when they click the right hand event send you know a push request and then broadcast that like for us it's just like you just write three lines of code and now everyone's web player goes to the next song so this idea of long-lived concurrency on the server gives you a ton of benefits and attaching that to a piece of ui provides some extreme benefits over like i'd say the single page app approach that reminds me a little bit of Discord's architecture. I remember some folks talking about um, how they set things up, maybe in a blog post or in a podcast interview. But what you said here was like, this is not a Band-Aid approach. Like, this is real good architecture that is good. And I've definitely seen this repeated a lot of times on things like the Orange site, where it's quote, un, you know, unwise to have this many kind of processes going or so you don't, you don't want that state on the server. So whatever, but companies like discord are like built on this kind of architecture and they're doing great, you know, like in, in a lot of ways, I'd, I'd, I'd actually rather use discord than Slack, <laughs> but like, this is a proven architecture, a good architecture, a desired architecture for a lot of folks. And maybe the difference in people's minds of like where it's good and where it's not good is, is because of the web. You know, it's easy to think that like Discord not being a traditional web app, even though you can, and I do run this in a browser tab, 
that association of being like a desktop application means that like it's okay to have this kind of architecture. But when it comes to the web, there is an exclusion that you can't do this well. And I think that you know Phoenix Live View and and the socket, you know the the web socket concurrent connections and and stateful you know connections here. I think that is finally challenging successfully, and perhaps maybe upsetting some folks. <laughs> that preconception is is no longer true. It may have been true for a long time because of the tech stacks that we had, but with LiveView, it makes it a lot easier to do it well. So I'm glad that you said that, that it's, you know, it's not just a band-aid. It's it's hard to break that that mindset, I think, for some folks. That's a good point. Yeah. I think people lack the mental model in some cases where they just haven't like it's easy to dismiss, right? Because you think it's like just like you know, PJAX or TurboLink, something that you've seen before, you can be dismissive about it. Or, you know, you have this intuition that WebSockets are expensive. So you're like, well, you know, it's good for toys, but not for anything else because you've never used a platform that could scale well with WebSockets. So I think a lot of it comes from like just incorrect preconceived notions. And I do think like it does kind of challenge the status quo to such an extent that people immediately throw up like a mental barrier. Like I think there's like an <laughs> initial reaction where like this has to be bad. The most interesting thing is like once you operate in this landscape, like things like, you know, just become so trivial. Like one example, I think like in our private Slack, I mentioned like, it's kind of like I was just flexing on like what, what we can do with this app. In the app, you can like, there's a settings page. You, you log in with GitHub, but you can change your username. And I changed my username to like test things out. And then I clicked on someone's username in the web player on another tab, like if 404s. So I was like, oh, well, that sucks. If someone changes their username, like, you know, someone else's screen has the old the old username, right? Any problem you have with like any static HTML page. So then I was like, well, why don't we just send the event that the username changed and, and change it, right, uh, on everyone's tabs. So that was three lines of code to do. <laughs> LiveView has this feature where like, you can basically say navigate to this new URL, but over WebSockets. So do a push date on the client uh, called push patch. So like literally three lines of code where, I went to the place in the Elixir code that does the username change and I broadcasted, hey, this username changed. And then all the other apps have three lines of code that say, oh, the username changed. And then they just call push patch to the new profile URL. Things like that, I think really change or drive home like what we can do in, in this kind of landscape. Whereas like if you try to do this kind of thing before, then it would be the same thing like, well, we have to get that down to the browser somehow. So I need to like come up with a contract on what happens when a user changes their name. I need to go write some server code. I likely don't have a distributed pub subsystem. So if I'm not using one yet, I need to bring that in. And then I need to get that down to the browser. And like you get like literally a web of complexity to do something that's three lines of code for us that just like is built in. It's been really neat to actually just build something. As weird that sounds like it's just, it's been a lot of fun where like I, I run into these problems where it's like, what if we could just do this? And it's like, oh well, yeah, of course we can do this. <laughs> I, I tell folks to have, like, have an open mind, but I'm hoping that's what this app kind of proves where it's not like, it's not a toy. And then as you click around the app, like it's currently single region on fly. So we can get into kind of maybe some future plans, but it's deployed in the US currently in a single region. But as you navigate around, like it's, it's using just a single WebSocket frame, it feels extremely fast. So it's not like, you know, the web player is persistent. And then as you're clicking pages, I think that it's going to feel remarkably quick to what folks are probably expecting. I do want to describe briefly just what some of the UI might be. So when you, dear listener, come to it, just so you can have a frame of reference for what you're seeing. So the idea is that Cade and 
Chris and David and I have our own playlists, right? David starts his playlist, so he's playing some songs. I can go and listen in on David's live running playlist as it's playing. And as he skips a song, my following is skipped ahead to follow where he's at. So it's kind of like that DJ thing you mentioned. That's where presence is really coming in. It becomes social in that way. You mentioned that this is open source and that people can download and explore the source themselves, which I think is huge and beneficial. But that means people can download it to their own little work environment or just their house and have some of this social thing happening on different computers within their house. And it all works. Do you have any other ideas or thoughts on how people might play with this themselves? Since it's open source, you just, you know, just like starting any other Phoenix app, mixdeps.git makes Phoenix server and the app should be up and running and, and just works locally. Anyone with, you know, access to your IP can, can join or you could deploy it yourself to fly with password protected internal for your team to use. So yeah, the idea is like, it's not just like, oh, this is what Chris is listening to currently. It's like, Chris is listening to this at the 30 second mark and I'm going to join in and, and listen together. So I think, you know, this works really well for single node deployment. It will just work multi-node, but with some caveats. And that's something we want to explore soon. So like the PubSub layer is just going to work. You know, Phoenix PubSub will work regardless of the number of nodes. But we are storing the files on this currently just to a single node. So one of the things I want to do as a next step is support kind of distributed persistence across the cluster. And it's, there actually is a branch that's half done for that currently where we're We'll be able to deploy to any number of servers and depending on what server the user is connected to or what region they're in, it's going to store on that server. And then we'll be able to actually fetch that, you know, depending on where they load balance to, we'll be able to actually go get the files and uh, almost like our own little like distributed CDN cache in the app, which should be actually not that much code to, to get done. But currently it's a TBD on the actual file persistence working multi node. So you're saying that the file persistence working multi-node. I'm still in the world of like a, an asset CDN being separate from the application distribution. So is the application and the assets, are they, are they traveling together or are these two separate kind of things and deployments? Yeah, they're traveling together currently. So like one option for us is we could make the persistence could be configurable backend. So if you wanted to put it on uh, CDN or S3, you could just do so. But currently we just store it to disk. One of the things I want to play with is like, you know, that's a, an awesome approach. But one of the, the cool things about Fly is the idea is you can run the app close to your users, which is like essentially what a CDN is. So it's like if we, if we already have our code there, which I think everyone can agree, like if you can get your app close as possible to your user, it's going to be a better experience. So if we're already doing that, why not just serve our assets from there as well and skip this CDN phase? So I think like, and we have, we've got this distributed language too. So it's like, if we connect to a server in Virginia and we know that someone in Hong Kong uploaded an MP3 and that's where it lives, we should just be able to go actually get that file from the other server and then just serve it locally. So that's kind of the idea of something that we want, want to explore. By all means, you could use S3 or some other service provider, but I think there's actually something really neat to say like, hey, like disk persistence is actually a thing that exists in computing and like we could, we could store things there. So... But yeah, if you deploy this multi-node currently, it's just going to save on the file that the users happen to be connected to. One of the things that we saw with Jose Valim when he was doing the advent of code was as he was doing live book and interactively doing some of these things, he would hit some little snags that he'd be like, oh, let me fix that. And then, you know, next time, next video, he would come back and there would be an improvement. Were there cases with LiveView where some of that came out of this project? 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to think because like there were so many that I need to actually go back and remember. We currently don't have a lot of lower level built-in function components. So like one thing is folks that are used to like the link to helper function that they write in the EEX. There's a lot of equivalents that don't yet exist for the new Heeks H-E-E-X syntax. This app is kind of a test bed for a lot of what I think will eventually make its way into a something that ships with LiveView. So I think a lot of things I hit were things that wouldn't necessarily want to ship in one form or another, like generating links. And the link could be something like an old style. Like if you want to log out, you know that's going to be doing the post request that gets converted via parameter to a delete request. Like So there's a lot of like little things like that that are just built into the app currently and imported as a local function that I think will make their way back into LiveView. So the sticky true option, which is we talked about like a persistent media player that lives uh, within the main LiveView came out of this because it was always supported before where I would tell people just render two LiveViews on the page. But when I went to implement this app, that changed my layout very slightly where the media player displayed 100% width and I wanted to be within the sidebar in the main layout. So I needed a new feature for that. So something that directly fell out of out of this effort. So I've, I've learned way too much about JavaScript than I would have thought possible. But like, there's a bunch of interesting DOM things that you learn doing these things. So like, it turns out to be able to do this, keeping the media player as you navigate, I didn't think it was possible before because like the parent DOM node actually gets removed entirely. So you're like, well, I'm actually removing a parent, which removes the children from the, the DOM. So how do I keep something around? I don't want to flicker. And then it's, an, it's a media player. So like the actual audio tag can't be destroyed and then recreated really quickly, right? You can't really fake like, oh, we it's still here, but we destroyed it. So it turns out you can remove an element from the DOM. And as long as you hold a reference to it in JavaScript, like it still exists. <laughs> <laughs> the man behind the curtains holds on to it. Uh, so yeah, so it's like a bunch of neat things like that where find the things that are sticky and remove them that hold on to the reference. I do the new live view mount and then we just add them back where they should be in the DOM and like, Somehow that works with browsers. So that was cool. That seems safe. <laughs> Do you have this fear, this deep-seated fear, though, that one day Safari is going to have an update and it's busted? <laughs> it's possible, but it works in every every browser I've tried. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's like a documented behavior, but it's like, yeah, these things that, that you don't know exist. And then some of the JS features made heavy use of like the client-side functionality. And uh, a lot of this was experimenting with like if I'm building reusable components using, I'm using the new slots feature, which is a way for you to say like, this is a modal. And then within that modal, I want to say like, this is where the header of the modal goes, but that could be arbitrary markup. So I spent a lot of time just kind of exploring how those features fit together and then how they compose. So like if someone wants to say like the modal should have a confirm and cancel slot that someone can put whatever they want there, like an okay or cancel button. If they click cancel, we want that to do the client side, hide the modal thing. But then the user may want to say when they click cancel, push an event to the server. So like there are these ideas on like composable UI features that I explored and, and made their way into the app that I think will be just like a beneficial example on like how to like everyone ha- is going to have this kind of problem, right? Like all the perimeters are there, but actually seeing an app and, and using it, I think is going to be really helpful. And I think I hit a number of bugs too that I can't remember, but there were certainly several features that fell out of this. It was like half the work I did was like, adding things to live view or fixing something I found, which is actually, like I said, like this, this project served like a multi-purpose thing. And one, one of the good things is just exploring the features and finding where either they were broken or just didn't quite work well. 
So Chris, when I'm working on some live view projects, one component I usually pull in is Alpine JS. And one of the reasons why I usually have to pull it in is because of some attributes on components on HTML components that I need to adjust like on the fly. And and sometimes that's like real simple stuff and I and I can see clearly how to do that with just Phoenix. But in other cases like accessibility, I often find that Alpine.js helps me out there. Did you find any any tips or maybe improvements to to Live View to to like take care of accessibility things in Live View apps? As it happens on the Orange site, this has come up and rightfully so. So like anytime a Live View example app comes on, people have complained in the comments about accessibility. And I will say like as a user, as a, like a, a user that doesn't have any issues that I would need to use, like the accessibility features, I've been able to mostly ignore these features, right? As a developer in my life, like that's always been someone else's problem to, to solve. What's awesome about Fly is we actually hired a contractor to come into the Live Beats app and just like improve the accessibility to show that like live view and this live view app can be accessible and also explore ideas on like, how could we do better in live view to improve accessibility? So it's actually, I've learned a lot around ARIA tags in general. Like I said, it's something that someone else on the team is always taken care of. Right. But one of the cool efforts that's come out of the live beats app is accessibility improvements that we've added back to live view in small pieces. But one thing that it's, it's shown me is to solve this fully is one level up above live view. So one example is like in the app, we have a tailwind menu where like you click on your username and you get like, go to your settings, log out, you know, standard drop down and making that accessible. Like there's actually a ton of considerations that you never think about. Like that when someone clicks the toggle, it needs to set the focus properly on the first item in the menu. Keyboard navigation should work and mirror the operating system that they're on. And it's like, that's none of that's built into the browser. So I also learned that like, Things that you take for granted, like, oh, like, you know, of course, browsers know about these things. It's like, no, they really don't. Like the ARIA tags, while they're helpful, are like, you know, declaring what screen readers should be looking for and informing the user on. But like hitting the down arrow, even though this is like labeled as an ARIA menu, isn't going to do anything. It's not going to set the focus. It's not going to move to the next item. Like you have to implement that. So in the app, we've implemented the app.js. It's like the only, it's only one JavaScript file in the whole app. It's doing the media player and the accessibility. So we have like an accessible menu that's just doing kind of the basic things that you, you want. Like when they click the menu, it sets the focus, keyboard navigation works. They hit escape, it closes it and sets the focus back to the thing they clicked on. Like all these things that you take for granted work in the application, but it's not like it's just going to work in, in live view yet. So we've been using this effort to figure out like what could we actually abstract where like maybe you could just say like PHX menu and it just works was the initial idea. Like what, let's just extract this, put it in live view. Like we want to make accessibility as simple as possible and as easy as possible because developers are lazy and they're not going to do it. If, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like, it's super important, but people have ignored it since the beginning of UIs and how do we make it just built in? So one thing I've taught that's taught me is like trying to abstract it now is too much effort for the end user. Like if they have to annotate this is a PHX menu and this is a keyboard navigable thing. It became too verbose where it was like, yes, we could abstract this into them not having to write JavaScript or add this custom JavaScript hook that happens to work. What I'm getting at is I think there's there's a component library that sits on top of LiveView or several component libraries, depending on what you people want. It would implement a menu, which happens to be accessible. So it's not like, oh, if you want to do the right thing as a human, you know, add this accessible menu thing. No, it's like if there's a Tailwind component library, 
you know, they would have a dot menu tag that you drop in your template. And that thing just happens to be keyboard navigable and doing all the things. And that's near impossible to just have that work in live view because it's really at like the markup level. So I think there are things that we can extract from the live beats app into a component library that is off the shelf available, but it wouldn't be in live view itself. So I think this is actually a really important thing. And I would have thought a lot more things just worked from a accessibility perspective. Like if you added the correct ARIA tags, which they do, right? If you want to tell the user, this is a dialogue, this is a, you know, a modal on screen that's that they get an alert, like that will work. But then like when they close that, like where should focus go? which alerts them to like, where are they currently? Like there's a lot of things that necessarily require developer intervention, which if it requires developer intervention and they are a sighted individual, they're not going to care about it. I would love to see whether it's something that myself, Phoenix team or Fly or the community works on is, I think we're going to see component libraries come up. We already saw there's a, there's a pedal component library. So I think the goal with the Heeks template syntax is off the shelf components. And what I would love to see is all of these off the shelf component libraries are just accessible out of the box. So like you use them because you want a menu. If you're using Tailwind, you want a Tailwind menu. And the only way to build a menu is to call this function and it just happens to be accessible is my goal. Beginning of, of that effort, but it's been kind of eye-opening for me. So what you're saying is like, it's it's at the HTML level, it's at the component level. So you really have to put that in there and that can't be solved by LiveView by itself. And I think that LiveView, especially with the Heeks and component Oh, that use phoenix.component, whatever that's called. That part, since that, that landed in 0.16, I think we, we're, we're now able to start looking at that. And I think, was it 0.17 that has the JavaScript parts in there? That's really going to help as well, I believe. And, and you said something that piqued my interest a bit. That was Tailwind. So you, you said that Live Beats is using Tailwind. I think every single Phoenix project I've ever built has been in Tailwind. I even recall, I, I submitted a PR that I think I ended up closing to add a Tailwind flag to the, the the Phoenix generators. So I think that Tailwind has a lot of traction. And if I remember right, there's been several surveys that Tailwind is the most favored CSS framework at this point. And you now, presume it's you, release the Tailwind's mix installer bits, kind of like the ES build, right? It does a lot of the same things. So it'll go fetch the, the, the Tailwind CLI and install it and, and run it outside of Node, so you're separating Node a bit more. Uh, so that's great. So with all of this Tailwind activity happening and, and the need for a component library, which Tailwind UI is, is there, is there a, 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 an integration point here that, that's coming up? Or is there something that we can do to make this a little bit easier for users? There's something that we've been working towards for a while. And one of the requirements for me with, with Tailwind was it couldn't require node to be on the system because like as much as I love Tailwind, like I've been a happy user, you know, we've been on this effort to get rid of node entirely. Like that was a hard wall that we put up when we dropped Webpack and added ES build. My life got like immensely better, but like every time I use Tailwind, I still had to, you know, the Tailwind CLI is awesome because like you just do like MPX Tailwind and it brings it like it's still as good of experience as it could be, but in places a huge burden on the user. I still didn't trust that it would work five years from now. You know, if I, re- if I revisit a project and I want to change like the color of a button, that shouldn't fail. That should that shouldn't have a failure mode that in- that requires me to like go search the internet for desperate answers on getting Node to work. So fortunately, Adam, the creator of Tailwind, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just us, but Jose and myself had asked him, you know, about this kind of idea. Like, is there any way you can just package like you know portable binaries of this? If you could do that, we would just ship it, you know, out of the box. So. Now that that's happened and that just works, we release a Tailwind Elixir package that just goes based on your system, downloads this 
portable, already compiled program, adds it to your build directory, and then just runs Tailwind with no node on the system. Technically, I think the, the binary actually has node packaged up internally. So it's like a 30 megabyte binary, but like you don't have to have node on the system or worry about node. So that was a hard requirement. Now that that's landed, it's amazing because like Live Beats just works with it. So again, like this effort has led to all kinds of neat stuff. Like, you know, once uh, Adam released that, uh, he gave me early access and I was like, well, I have, I have a Tailwind UI app, like, you know, non-trivial Tailwind application. Like, will it just work with this? And it turns out like it works. So I can be reasonably confident that we've got, you know, a, a reasonable solution. So my goal now is Phoenix 1.7 will include Tailwind out of the box. And that's probably going to make a lot of people happy, but also a lot of probably equal amount of people like will get the pitchforks out. <laughs> but I think the most interesting thing is when you run like phoenixgen.live, we're going to generate some base level components in the app. And the goal is like, you know, you'll have a table component, you'll have a modal component and all of your app UI, like the actual live views in the app and, and, and components will just use these predefined component tags. So like Tailwind will exist in one place where the components themselves are defined. Like what it means to be a modal will have Tailwind classes that make it a pretty modal. So if someone comes in and they say like, well, I don't want to use Tailwind because I'm philosophically opposed to it, or if they just have requirements that they're using Bulma or Bootstrap, what, what have you, they'll go to the function in the app and their app that's called modal, and then they'll just rewrite the markup to whatever Bootstrap modal it is. So I actually think it's going to be the same amount of work but actually less than before. So like before we would generate minimal markup, like we tried, we, we called it like classes markup with the milligram CSS framework. Like we, we wanted something out of the box for prototyping that looked decent. But if you wanted to scrap milligram for let's say bootstrap, you still have to go to all that markup in your app everywhere, not just in the place that defines a modal, everywhere that's using the modal, scrap all that markup, rewrite it. So now you actually are going to change it to one place. So like you're to a point where outside of like the app main layout that defines like the containers, you're going to only change like that modal function to a bootstrap modal. And now, hey, it's using bootstrap and it's a bootstrap modal. So I think we're actually get to a, a point where this is going to be less work for folks to not use Tailwind if that's something they don't want to do. And then if they are using Tailwind or they just want to rapidly prototype, they're going to have like an outrageous productivity improvement, but even if they have to learn Tailwind because... I like to say like my CSS is like mid 2000s state of the art <laughs> mid 2000s. Like, it wasn't state of the art. It was like mid 2000s, like float left, float right was like my way to solve. Like, I don't know, like, you know, it doesn't look right out of float left. It works like, um, <laughs> yep. Try, try, try clear fix next. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I did a ton of HTML and CSS in a prior life and it's never been like this intuitive experience. So I think like tailwind for me solves like a huge burden. I mean, for folks that are maybe not convinced and they've never used Tailwind, I would say like what LiveView has taught me is co-location is really powerful. You're writing your template code and your Elixir code side by side. What it's taught me is like the visual styling of an element where the element exists is actually equally powerful. And like, because before, like if you have a CSS file, there are all these ideas behind CSS that folks had worked on for years that is probably a reason they, they really don't like Tailwind. There is a path to CSS where you change a style somewhere and it doesn't just blow up the app in some places. If you happen to follow kind of like guidelines perfectly, I think there are design approaches that can make CSS work really well for a team. But for me, it's always been like, well, add a new class because I don't want to break this thing somewhere else. And then you have 40 megabytes of CSS in your app over a five-year span. <laughs> yeah. So for Tailwind, for me, it's removed this like burden of what do I name things? Do I have to define a new class? And if I do that, am I going to break something? 
or if I'm updating existing class, I'm going to break something somewhere else. It solved all that, and it lives in one place in the app now with the new component syntax. So like I define a modal, everything that's a modal is right here. Nowhere else, like nowhere else in the app, there's no CSS file to look. I, I didn't write a single line of CSS for live beats. So like I include Tailwind. So I'm a big believer, like, I, like there's the whole like at apply thing with Tailwind where you can like still use Tailwind, but make your own classes. Like, no, I, I, I wrote no CSS. So like I define the component, everything that's a modal that represents a modal is there. Everything that's a sidebar is just contained in the sidebar component. So for me, it's been this really powerful way to build an app and also made me like outrageously productive. So I think folks should have an open mind here, but I would like to see Phoenix 1.7 ship with this because it's just so productive to rapidly prototype, which is my goal for out-of-the-box Phoenix support. And then for folks that want to stay with Tailwind, then it's just there, right? It's not like, well, scrap all the markup now because like, like, no one's using milligrams. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about this for a long, long time, right? And it's finally within sight. but like for people that are going to complain about doing this by default, like we ship milligram CSS by default. No one is using that in production. I shouldn't, I'm not putting milligram down. I'm just saying like, I would guess less than 1% of Phoenix users keep that in place, right? Like either they're using Tailwind, they're using Bootstrap, they're using Balma, their design team's going to bring something else in. So it's like, there's already this effort of like, I'm going to throw away the CSS and markup that Phoenix generated. So we can get to a place where you have to throw less away and and if you want to use Tailwind, it's just there. So I, I think that like, regardless of people's feelings on Tailwind, it's just going to be a better experience out of the box. Uh, and if they happen to like Tailwind, it's going to be even better. I can't make any promises here, but there's a potential we can get to a point where depending on where these like table and modal components land is like, you might be able to do like mixphoenixgen.live dash dash bootstrap. And maybe like you get bootstrap stuff because if we can componentize things in such a way that they're portable, then it's like, it doesn't matter what you're using internally if it's a bootstrap markup or tailwind markup we could just drop that into your app so i'm not gonna make any promises there it's not something we wouldn't implement these for everyone but maybe there could be an extension contract where people could just get you know the dot the def modal in their app would just generate bootstrap markup i could foresee outside of the app layout where it's necessarily going to have you know the containers with certain classes that there is some like portable idea there but we have to try to build our cred generators first and then see like are they extensible enough where we could land there. But I think in general, 1.7, ideally we'll ship with, with Tailwind. Just to recap a little bit, Phoenix 1.7 might include Tailwind classes by default. This isn't as big of a change as some might be thinking because there's already classes in the Phoenix generators. It's just powered by Milligram. So we're just going to replace Milligram with Tailwind. And with the with the new powers of Phoenix components, this makes a lot of sense now anyway, because we can consolidate all of those CSS classes and whatnot. And so again, this isn't about Phoenix Live View, you know, like working in general. This is about Phoenix generators. So this is just the generators that, you know, are, are gonna put Tailwind in there, which if you're starting a project, that's perfect. That's great. That's a great starting point. If you're two years into your project, you're probably not using the generators anymore and if you are then it, 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 like chris said all you got to do is run the generator see the tailwind classes replaced with whatever you're running and you're good to go which is what they would have had to do today anyway so they would have to do more work like they would have to go everywhere that there's an actual just regular table tab tag in their app they'd have to add classes to it right so it's going to be even less work now well, thank goodness. <laughs> I look back at that PR I opened up a long time ago. It's December 10th, 2020. So we're, we're in the 2022 now. So this is about a little over a year old. 
And so I'm, I'm very happy to see that be the plan. I'm, I'm really excited for it. That just shows that David's had a long running affection for Tailwind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and support with, uh, with Phoenix. I think this will be a good, a good change. Yeah. Well, Chris, you said you were going to be releasing a blog post that talks about some of this. Is there anything else that people can look forward to about the project other than just the code itself? One of the things I want to do is deploy this like globally all over the world. And this is where some of the work that you've been doing, Mark, comes in. You know, it's using Postgres behind the scenes. There is a replica in the local region, but we want to make use of the library that Mark has been working on to deploy this globally, have uh, read replicas of the data in each region across the world, and then, you know, ferry writes back to the, the primary region, the primary data database. And I actually think that's going to be a lot less work than it sounds uh, based on the work that Mark has done. But that would be the next step is like actually deploy this all over the world, then have like side-by-side code changes. So, you know, whether it's like a different branch of the app or we just have, you know, it just works globally, uh, we'll have to see. But it would kind of, it would be neat to say like, uh, it would be neat as an example to say like, okay, here's this app that we we literally built for single region. And now here's what it took to go multi-region. Like that's a blog post in and of itself, but like just seeing the code by side by side will, I think be really informative. So I think that's something to watch out for in the future, but not a requirement for having it deployed and, and be usable. And like I said, even if you're in across the world, like all the client side interactions, like when you hit play, it's just going to play immediately. Even when you delete an item, you get a, a dialogue. When you click delete, the dialogue pops up instantaneously. It says, okay, you click okay. We hide the dialogue immediately. We remove the row and then we send the delete to the server asynchronously essentially from the client. Um, but like all that's like, I think there's a lot of things that you would expect a single page app to do will just work currently, even if the app is not local to you. Um, but that's definitely something to keep on keep an eye out for because that's kind of like the most exciting problems uh, for me that are on my mind are kind of this like globally distributed app idea. Stay tuned for that. When you have a project of a size like that, there's a certain level of complexity that you just, that's inherent in having a, something that big. And that, that gives a lot of opportunities for people to highlight different things going on in there. It's like, oh, you mentioned this idea about the sticky option. That's been pulled out into a recipe on the Fly blog of how to use that sticky option. I have a link in the show notes. So there's lots of opportunities for little nuggets of information and just to highlight this is how this thing is accomplished. Oh, and if you want to see it in the greater context, here's a whole project that's using it. And here's kind of where you can look for that. Absolutely. And the, the other thing I want to plug as well is, so all of the components that we wrote in the app today aren't using this feature yet because it hasn't landed quite yet. It's almost ready. So we, we added a declarative assign API for components. And this is something that we got from Surface, essentially. Mark, you had you plugged Surface uh, way back at the beginning of the episode. This is something that Marlis, uh, the creator of Surface, implemented for us. It's not a one-to-one for what Surface is doing, but it's essentially the same idea where you've got these components, they accept attributes inside their you know HTML tag syntax, but like how do you declaratively say, these are the attributes I accept. And then it would be nice if the compiler could actually enforce, hey, you tried to say dot modal, but you didn't include a title or you know all the required things that represent a modal. So the app currently is not using the declarative signs, but there is a PR that is nearly done. So that would be kind of like the very next step is for us to migrate all of our components to, to the declarative API. And it's gonna, like, it cleans up a bunch of stuff in the app, like defining what the component takes. It's a great documentation on like, what can I pass to this thing? Because like the modal, some of the components that we've added to the app, they can get a bit large in what they accept, right? You could have a modal that has a arbitrary number of buttons. Those buttons could handle 
cancel events, click events. Like there's a bunch of stuff that can now be defined via an annotation above the function on like, this is what we accept, that this is required, this is not required, this is the type that it is. And we can enforce much of that at compile time. So like, it's just going to blow up or you would want the computer to tell you this doesn't work. So definitely keep an eye out for that. I'm certainly looking forward to that change. Just because, yeah, as you get bigger components, like with React, you'd have props that could be enforced and things like that. So I think it's a great idea, especially as you start talking about these ideas of component libraries is something you didn't even build. Maybe it's built by an internal team or it's something that's external from the community. Just being able to more interactively explore and play with the components and they give you feedback about how to use them and, oh, you need this, you have to have that. So very excited to see that come out too. Chris, this has been a blast and I'm sure we could keep going for quite a bit more like in in our pre-show doc that we coordinate everything through. There's lots more we could have talked about, but we ran out of time. So Chris, if people want to follow you or jump into this code or anything like that, where should they go to keep going with this? Yeah, I'm uh, Chris underscore McCord on Twitter. I'm sure I'll tweet out about it. And then the uh, actual deployed application, uh, as soon as this episode is live, we'll have a link in the show notes too where folks can just try it out. Very cool. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate the effort that you've put into making this project because like you said about the accessibility, I've worked on projects like an education space, right? Where accessibility is important either by law or whatever, because it's in education. And I was starting to be exposed to accessibility and I started to appreciate how complex it is and how as a fully sighted person, there were things that I just wasn't even aware of whole industries with screen readers and the difference between the screen readers and all that stuff. And and so you really have to become a specialist to be really good at that stuff. As an indie solo hacker, I don't have that ability. So anything that comes out with examples like this, where a contractor has gone through and, and shown some ways that this can be improved, certainly something I'm going to be digging into. But Chris, thank you again for your time. I look forward to lots of future content that's going to come out around this project. And I'd love to see what people are going to do with it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. (laughs) 